0: In the spring of 1942, the U.S. Army herded Kei Sakai-Nakao onto a train in Seattle. Kei was 22. She was traveling with her parents and five younger siblings. They weren't told where they were going. Armed soldiers guarded the train cars. They forced Kei and her fellow passengers, all Japanese American, to keep the shades on the train windows down. As we kept going, It got warmer and warmer and warmer, and we still didn't know where we were at. A day later, they were transferred to buses. Kay kept her eyes on the front window of the bus. Through there, I could see, way out yonder in the desert, all these barracks,
1: and some men without their shirts on, because it was so hot, and you could see the heat waves. And I said, to the person sitting next to me, oh, I'm sure glad I don't live in a place like that. And what do you know? The bus turned right in there. And I'm telling you, my heart sank
0: down to my toes. Kay and her family had arrived at a place called Manzanar. It was a detention center in the desert of Eastern California that soon became a permanent incarceration camp. All eight members of Kay's family were forced to live together in one room, roughly 20 feet by 20 feet. They were issued army cots and had to make their own mattresses by stuffing a sack with straw. They were not allowed to leave. The government denied that families like Kay's were prisoners, but the first summer they spent in Manzanar taught them otherwise. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a podcast series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Pat Suzuki. In March 1942, military commanders were in a rush to evict Japanese Americans from their homes on the West Coast. As a result, mass removal took place in two phases. First, people of Japanese ancestry were sent to temporary prison camps, or what the government called assembly centers. And that's where they spent the summer. Then, starting in August, the incarcerees were sent to live in permanent camps, most for the duration of the war. These incarceration camps were built in remote parts of western states and in Arkansas. This chapter is about the summer that 110,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned in the assembly centers. Law professor Eric Muller says it's easy to overlook this period because it only lasted a few months, but that would be a mistake.
2: These were miserable, anxious fairly rigidly controlled and very intensely boring places where there was very, very little to do and a lot of waiting. So it was a kind of shock.
0: It was a shock experience that colored everything that followed. The Army set up 16 assembly centers. They were built mainly on racetracks and fairgrounds where there was already running water and electricity. Army staff rolled out barbed wire fencing and erected guard towers with searchlights. The towers were manned by armed soldiers. Using plywood and tar paper, the army constructed rows and rows of barracks.
2: The interior of the barracks were as spartan as you could imagine, you know, basically a mattress filled with straw, a dangling light bulb in the middle of the room.
0: Muller says the lucky ones got to live in those barracks.
2: The unlucky ones, at least at the racetracks, actually ended up living in the horse stables because there were more people than there were barrack rooms to accommodate them. So what the government did was it kind of walked the race horses out of the stables, sprayed them down with water, swept out the straw, probably put a coat of whitewash up on the walls, and then just moved Japanese-American families into the horse stables to spend the rest of the summer.
0: While a majority of Japanese-Americans lived in barracks, at least 20,000 were forced to live in livestock pens. Aya Oenishi was one of them. She was 16 when she and her family were assigned a horse stall at Puyallup Assembly Center. The assembly center was built on fairgrounds outside of Seattle. The horse stalls were under the grandstand. The place stank of animal waste. There was no daylight in the stalls, so it took Aya a while to comprehend where she was living.
1: I was lying in my bunk and I was looking at the wall and I was flicking away at the wall when I realized it was whitewashed, but underneath was horse dump. I realized what I had scratched up was horse dump.
0: Aya's father had been taken away by the FBI, so she shared the horse stall with her mother and two siblings the place was miserable.
1: Because you're in an open grandstand, you hear the noises of everything, people crying, babies crying, women groaning, men groaning.
0: These were the degrading conditions that faced Japanese-Americans when they were forcibly removed from their homes. And I can remember them myself. I grew up on a farm in California. When I was 12 years old, my family was incarcerated at the Merced Assembly Center. Bob Fujigami was also there, the same age as
3: me. Merced was like a prison camp, surrounded by barbed wire, guard towers.
0: What Bob remembers is trying to figure out how to crawl under that barbed wire to pick some juicy-looking grapes growing on the other side. Oh,
3: I thought, gosh, it wouldn't take much to cross that little road you know, beyond the fence to get the grapes. I mean, you could see them, you could smell them.
0: Like a junior sleuth, Bob began tracking the pattern of the searchlights. He hoped to calculate just the right moment to make his escape, but one thing
3: stopped him. We were told, you go beyond that fence, you're going to get shot.
0: That was not an empty threat. During the time that they were incarcerated, seven Japanese Americans were shot and killed for stepping outside of camp. Despite the danger, some people refused to be cowed by the guards. Yukiko Miyake was 32 years old when she was imprisoned at the Puyallup Fairground with her daughter, Kako. Yukiko's husband had been picked up by the FBI, so she and Kako were housed in a woman's barrack.
1: There was one lady there with a nice voice, and she used to sing to us. And the guard would come and say, shut up, be quiet, you know. The minute he left, she started singing again.
0: (laughs) Yukiko resented the guards, and she wasn't afraid to taunt them.
1: I said, what are you doing up there? You know, we didn't do anything bad. I said, with a bayonet sticking in your gun? I said, what are you going to do, kill us?
0: Most of the assembly centers were located near the towns and cities where Japanese Americans had lived before President Roosevelt signed Order 9066, setting the mass incarceration in motion. That meant neighbors and friends could come visit. Some brought gifts of food like apple pie with ice cream or fried chicken. For Chia Tomohiro, these visits were a mixed blessing. She was a high school senior when her family was sent to the assembly center in Portland, Oregon. When her friends from the city came to see her, they weren't allowed inside the camp.
1: So they would stand outside the barbed wire fence and I would be inside and I'd be talking to them. And,
3: you know, it was so humiliating.
0: The barbed wire barrier reminded Chia that she was a prisoner, even though she hadn't done anything wrong. The assembly centers were prison-like in other ways, too. For instance, there was just no privacy. Each family had to live together in one room, whether it was a horse stall or a unit in the makeshift barracks. Small families had to bunk up with others. This was the case for Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga. If you recall in our last chapter, she was 17 when she arrived at Manzanar. She had just eloped with her boyfriend, Jake. There was some honeymoon, we separated our living quarters
1: by putting up blankets to give us a little privacy.
0: Aiko and Jake shared their room with Jake's older brother and sister, along with their new spouses and a baby girl. The walls between each apartment did not go all the way to the ceiling.
1: So if somebody sneezed in apartment one, you could hear it in apartment five. Conversations. We were never private because you could hear everything.
0: And of course, for newlyweds, privacy is important. I had never had any
1: sexual experience before I went to camp. And so making love on a straw mattress was noisy. I mean, every time you moved a toe, crackle, 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 you know. I don't know how I lived through it or perhaps we just respected each other's need for togetherness and sexual activity
0: that we ignored it. The barracks had no running water or bathrooms. Instead, the camps had primitive latrines and washrooms. When we first went into
1: the camps, uh, the toilets were not separated. No one had any privacy to answer nature's call.
0: And the women, particularly,
4: they just dreaded going
1: to
5: the bathroom.
0: This is Min Tonai, who was incarcerated at the Santa Anita racetrack.
4: And they would do all kinds of things to try to not, you know, go when other people are there. To the point where there was one enterprising girl who somehow found a large cardboard box. So she would carry that and put it around her when she went to go.
0: The showers were communal, too. Like the toilets, there were no partitions between the shower heads that stuck out from the wall. And Japanese women are
1: known to be pretty modest about things like that, and it was a a very hard adjustment for many to make. We would not shower in front of other people. Well, I wasn't going to. I'd never gotten naked in front of a stranger.
0: Akiko Okuno was a teenager when her family was sent to the Salinas Assembly Center in California. For Akiko and her sisters, figuring out how to shower in private was a problem.
1: So my mother solved it by waking us like about three o'clock or so in the morning, and then we'd all go Quietly to the shower room
0: when nobody else was around, to take our showers. Others crept to the latrines late at night in hopes of being alone. They often found neighbors there who had the same idea. Adding to the embarrassment, the searchlights often followed them as they walked. <laughs> The crude conditions at the assembly centers made life hard for everyone. This was especially true in the first weeks of incarceration when the camps weren't really finished. The army was still building mess halls. People stood in endless lines to get fed. At the Pomona Assembly Center just east of Los Angeles, elderly people would pass out waiting for food in the hot sun. And eating itself could be an ordeal. Many Japanese-Americans were accustomed to freshly caught fish and they ate fruits and vegetables they grew themselves or bought from a fresh market. In camp, a lot of what they ate came from a can. Some of the foods they fed us,
1: I would call it slop, you know, what we got was slop. And our first meal there, beets, cold canned beets with raw onions in them.
4: I've never heard of cow tongues, but they fit as cow tongues.
1: The food, as I remember it, was Vienna sausages and mutton stew. Our first lunch was those little canned wieners, and I don't remember whether there was sauerkraut with it or not, but I remember I
0: couldn't eat it. Me being raised through the depression, I learned to eat anything if it's taste bad, just don't breathe and just chew it and swallow. And that's how basically I got through without starving. People didn't starve in the detention camps, but historian Greg Robinson says the government was cheap when it came to feeding them. There were rumors in the surrounding white communities that the Japanese-Americans were being pampered.
5: The government deliberately kept the price of food per person below 50 cents a day. In fact, they mostly kept it to something like 35 cents a day, which meant that they couldn't feed people very well. And then the camps were covered by the same rationing that all civilians had to undergo during World War II. So there was hardly any meat, and certainly the meat they had was of terrible quality.
0: Sometimes that meat made people sick. Louise Casino remembers an especially rough night at the Puyallup Assembly Center. The culprit? Spoiled Vienna sausages. So people got diarrhea. Everybody was rushing to the bathroom, and, you know, sometimes you had to go two or three blocks to get to the bathroom. And I remember the guards on top of the grandstand turned the floodlights
1: on and the guns down at us.
0: Apparently, the guards thought the incarcerees were making a run for it.
1: It wasn't a stampede. No way were we trying to rebel, you know. But we were the enemy, I guess.
0: They thought we were the enemy.
2: This was a a cultural and emotional trauma for this community.
0: Historian Eric Muller says that Being treated as the enemy in makeshift prison camps was deeply stigmatizing for a people who prized the appearance of dignity.
2: It would be for any community, but I think for for certain cultural reasons, it might have been even more stigmatizing for the Japanese-American community.
0: Japanese Americans made exceptional efforts to overcome their circumstances. It started from those first days in the assembly centers. An incarcerated professor from UC Berkeley started an art school. High school seniors corralled younger kids into makeshift classrooms even when they had no books. College students ran a service to bring food to people who couldn't walk to the mess hall. Jean Akutsu, the cobbler's son we met in an earlier chapter, was just 16 years old when he volunteered to work on a maintenance crew. He was incarcerated at the Puyallup Assembly Center. He got assigned a particularly tough job. We used to clean out the septic tank every four to five weeks, take it out to the field and dump it, and then take it over to the river to rinse out the garbage can and haul it back. And that kind of was a regular routine. Routine, maybe, but Jean took up smoking to mask the stench. Life in the assembly centers was a constant struggle for the older generations. Many feared that they would never recover from their financial losses. One-third of the imprisoned population lacked citizenship, making them especially vulnerable. They had no idea what would happen to them, and they felt betrayed and hopeless. For kids and teens, the picture wasn't always as bleak. Historian Greg Robinson says that many figured out ways to amuse themselves.
5: Children are adaptable, and so they were able to have experiences that were fun and not realize what their parents were going through.
4: Being incarcerated like that, for me, it was a big picnic.
0: That's Frank Yamasaki. We met him in the previous chapter, Frank was a senior in high school when his family was sent to Puyallup, which some people called Camp Harmony. After the racial isolation he experienced in school, camp held some relief.
4: Because I've seen so many pretty girls, and i never seen so many Japanese in my life. Uh, they had all these activities that went on, even at Camp Harmony. They had all kinds of sports, uh, dancing, uh, several activities. <music>
3: I got on a team and uh, was able to play softball for the first time, and that was a lot of fun.
0: Bacon Sakatani was 12 when he and his family were imprisoned at the Pomona Assembly Center in California.
3: And then all the adults had a softball league. They were amazing. Well, dancing, of course, we would get the
4: uh, tables that are in there, and we would put those aside and we get some soap or you know and put it on the floor and the thing to this day i often wondered where did they get the pa system you know for the music i don't know
3: another thing that was really enjoyable was the weekly talent show you know they got all these musicians and singers and performers and oh it was very good i mean there were many talented people you know
4: We would find ways of sneaking into other areas, and the area of D was the most interesting because that used to be, that still is the uh, fairground. So they would have these concession areas like these spook houses and haunted houses, and (laughs) and so we would, they'd be boarded up, but we would find ways of going in there.
3: Of course, you know, we're sitting in an open field on uh, dirt ground with guards around the place. Having to stay in a room 20 feet by 20 feet, no screens on the window, sleeping on straw mattresses, but overlooking all those kind of things. There were some things that were enjoyable. Well, most of the things were bad, but, you know, a few things were
5: enjoyable. I think that we have to be careful when we talk about the camps as being unrelievably grim places.
0: Historian Greg Robinson.
5: There were hardships, and there was suffering that went on. But I think that the more important thing to realize is that the tragedy of what happened is that people, because of their ancestry or their race, were taken away from their homes for no reason.
0: That realization hit Frank Yamasaki when a white teacher from his high school surprised him with a visit at the assembly center.
4: He says, is there some place we can sit and talk, you know?
0: Frank knew just the place. The grandstand on the fairgrounds, where he'd sometimes take a girl.
4: So we went up there, and uh, all of a sudden, I, I just feel that the atmosphere has changed. All of a sudden, I had a perspective view of the whole camp area, and I never dreamed the rows of barracks that was there. And it's a kind of a shocking view. And this guy, uh, the teacher, said uh, he was telling about his experience uh, during the World War One. And uh, he's German and his father was interned. And so he went through a similar experience and he, he said, uh, this is the dirty rotten shame that this kind of thing had happened, you know? And for the first time, I really felt the impact of what was going on. And uh, it, prior to then, I was a happy-go-lucky, uh, carefree teenager, And yeah, it made uh, quite an impression on me.
0: By the end of summer 1942, Japanese-Americans held in the assembly centers would start their next big move, this time to permanent incarceration camps built much further inland. Many people expected that life would be better once they were out of the temporary camps. At least they would no longer be living in horse stalls. But many would be disappointed. The permanent camps, built in isolated deserts or swamps, presented a whole new set of challenges. Some would be broken by the experience, and some would invent new and ingenious ways to survive. One of the things that my mom wanted to do was to make comforters. And so my dad planted cotton between the barracks. He also made a hand roller to take the seeds out. And so that's what we did as kids. We rolled this thing and took all the seeds out the Japanese-American farmers and scientists held in the camps used their deep knowledge of agriculture to grow fresh food in harsh climates.
3: We had 60 acres of corn for canning and it was just beautiful, it was not a single worm.
0: That's in the next chapter of order 9066. Please help us spread the word about this series by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Suzuki. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirschner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Mariyama and Emerald O'Brien. Our technical director is Corey Shrepel. This podcast is a collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sane Fuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Dentschel. If you want to learn more about the terminology we use to describe the incarceration and why we don't call it internment, go to our website, apmreports.org. You'll find links to other resources, too. While you're there, you can upload any photos of any objects you may have that are linked to the incarceration and see a gallery of what others have contributed. You can also find a link to the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. That's apmreports.org. Thanks for listening. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Tarasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbode Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.